From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I don't know. I got my Paul Sweeney personal inflation meter, otherwise known as unleaded gas. It continues to roll over. There's signs Dude, that... especially if you're at Sheets in Newark, Ohio on I know. 21st Street. Exactly. They're giving it away practically. We're seeing in other parts of the economy, inflation, a lot of people are telling me, has peaked. If that's in fact the case, why doesn't Ira Jersey's Federal Reserve just put the brakes on it? Let's ask Ira. He's the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. And we need to save some time to talk about World Cup here. Matt, remind me on that. I know, but we're not going to talk about Amazon because Ira has such a cushy job. All he focuses on is treasuries. treasuries. Ira, why don't you broaden your remit a little bit? I mean, the whole rate space is there for you. Well, my, well, so we have a credit strategist named Noel Hebert who covers corporates. So you can ask, uh, talk to him about See. what's going on in the tech space and all the other sectors within within corporate landscape. So, also, I think it's um, fair, actually, now that I think about it, considering the amount of Fed speak out there, yeah. we need one guy that's just focused on that. Like, why do they come out and talk so much? Doesn't that annoy Jay Powell? <laughs> uh, yeah, it would have annoyed Alan Greenspan for sure. Um, yeah, you know, the Fed over the last 20 years has gotten very de- democratized. And, and there's just, I think there's just been this push that all the members are, um, you know, wanted to say things. And then they, when they, once they started to, it was hard to kind of put the genie back in the bottle. Uh, Jay Powell certainly is still the mouthpiece for the entire Federal Reserve, and I think that his what he says matters obviously the most. And then, um, but every member, you know, wants to have their say. And and you know, for, from an analysis perspective, it's a little bit easier for us to to determine things like where the dots are and and maybe who's uh, who's really hawkish and dovish uh, vis-a-vis what you could do before Alan Greenspan or you know left the Federal Reserve because back then it was like okay it's whatever Alan Greenspan says and but every once in a while you had some members that were more hawkish or dovish than him and and they would dissent and we didn't necessarily know in advance if they would and now it's it's a little bit easier to determine you know what what the leaning of a majority or of the right. or, or a significant minority of the Federal Reserve is going to be. Well, and now then to Paul's point, um, it does seem it's not just him, right? A lot of people think inflation has peaked now, even though we've only gotten a very small set of numbers to corroborate that. But the the speakers, for the most part, are talking about a step down, a reduction in the rate hike increases that we've seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So have we reached that point? I mean, are we looking at something of a pivot yeah so you know this is something that actually that jay powell's been mentioning since uh 
since July, right? So it's not, this isn't a new concept and uh, this step down in, in the pace of hikes. They weren't going to hike at 75 basis points every single meeting forever, right? So at some point they were going to have to slow the pace or just stop. And, and I think in December they're only going to go 50. I think they'll go then 25 after that. And, and I mentioned to you guys before, uh, you know, they're going to, to go to the 25 basis point um, moves again, probably starting in, in fe- at the February meeting, the February 1st meeting, because it allows them just to calibrate just a little bit more. Like, should they go to 5% on the upper bound of the, the Fed funds target? Should they go to five and a quarter, like some people um, think they sh- should go? So, so by, by going in 25s, they can just calibrate toward the end of hikes. But, but I think the important point there is that, to, to, to Paul's question, is that, yes, inflation seems like it's rolled over. The economy is slowing a bit. And because of that, the, the Fed is nearing the end of their hikes. Whether or not they go another, another 50, 75, or 100 basis points, it's still the end is still in sight. And I think that that's the important part for, point for the markets right now. All right, that's enough on the rates market. Let's get to the important stuff. 2 p.m. Wall Street time today, U.S., Iran, how do you think this is going to go? Especially in a World Cup where literally anyone can win. Yes, it seems like it. <laughs> so I, I think for Iran, given that they, they beat uh, Wales, they're going to probably play pretty defensively against us and try to put you know nine or ten guys behind the ball and just try and and try to beat us on a, on a counterattack. And and historically, if you go look at what the U.S. has done against other countries in North and Central America that they play that that we play in the Gold Cup. We, we tend to have a pretty hard time breaking down very what we call bunker defenses. So, um, so, so I think that, that you know, I, I hate to say this, but this is going to be probably a one-goal game, and I think it'll be, you know, maybe 1-0 to the U.S. in, in the end. Um, but, and, and if we do score early, I think that that will get, that'll get Iran out of their bunker because they're, in order for them to continue and, and actually make it to the next round, they're going to have to then play to, to at least draw uh, the U.S. And, Ira, um, so how much does historically matter? I mean, in a, in a contest where Saudi Arabia beats Argentina, is that because Saudi Arabia historically is great at soccer and Argentina is horrible? <laughs> No, not, not not at all. I think uh, I well in, in rewatching. What's that the game, percentage uh, history? You know, I mean, um, compared to chance. Well, well, let me say this. Firstly, I think any of these teams could be any any other team on a, on a, any given day. I mean, that's one of the that's like almost every sport, right? Especially when you're talking about high level professional athletes. I, I think in that Argentina Saudi Arabia game, I think Argentina came out a bit flat. I think that their defense has some holes in it that, um, that, that you know, Saudi Arabia certainly exploited. And um, so, so, you know, but, but that's a one-off game. I think, you know, taking the game yep. this afternoon um, as in a bubble, I think the U.S. has the more talented players, but Iran does play very compact. They yep. are very organized defensively, yep. and, and that's going to create problems for the U.S. All right, it's good stuff. I think it's going to be must-see TV for a lot of uh, sports fans today, even if you're not a soccer or World Cup fan. Uh, Ira Jersey, chief U.S. interest rate strategist and chief soccer strategist slash football strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, 
OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Markets over the last few days, you know, surprisingly to me, I guess, it just uh, really been kind of moving in response to kind of some of the news we're getting out of China. And I guess that goes to the whole global economic, uh, you know, reopening, recession risk, all those types of things yes. on a global scale is uh, obviously a large economy. So we like to talk to people who have got some experience thinking about investing in that part of the world. Uh, Hans Dow is one of those people who is the CEO of Mitchell Madison Group. And I think the, his claim to fame is he is an undergraduate from the University of Michigan who oh. had a an extraordinarily successful weekend so hans let me get your your thoughts here on the, the ohio state michigan game you guys know i went to dartmouth right yes you got your mba, MBA from at dartmouth right but i thought you got your ba yeah. from the university no of no 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 i did not i did not no, I went oh to, I went to school in germany <sighs> that's it yeah i'm sorry about that thank god <laughs> okay so, so we had some bad i thought you know no we problem. had a michigan guy coming on and i will uh, say you know that michigan played an incredible game on Saturday and Ohio State simply did not show up. I don't know where our defensive coordinator was. He didn't seem to be working that day, even though I thought that's why we hired him. <laughs> All of this means nothing to Hans Dow because no, he didn't he, go to Michigan. No, but he got his MBA <laughs> from Tuck. Qualified. All right, uh, Hans, let's let's pivot to China. Well, well here. first let's talk about your China bona fides then. Yeah. Because I know that you have made uh substantial contributions to uh the Tang and Song law, and um, you have helped U.S. government officials understand China and Chinese legal history. How did you get into China, going to school in Germany and then um, in Vermont? Well, well, we basically were a consulting firm, right? So we most of what we did over the last decade or so is help American companies establish um, production in China, sourcing from China, right? So my main business has been strategic sourcing, helping Western companies establish, you know, production and, uh, you know, sourcing agreement all over the world, of course, in China in particular. Uh, lately, we've actually helped a lot of Chinese companies uh, be more efficient within China. And, of course, since COVID, that whole business, there's, there's nothing going on there. I mean, you can't – I spent a lot of time going to China. Uh, before COVID, I was actually part of the um, – I was in Hong Kong doing the protests and everything, and I thought that was going to actually – result in something but it didn't right and the chinese clearly clamped down on this and i think we're just living in a world that looks quite different from from the world that you know existed before COVID, because you know china is our number one geopolitical rival there's no doubt about that and you're looking at the zero COVID policies uh causing you know lots of issues politically and you know the you saw the protests the market's up a little bit i guess people are more optimistic but still um, you know, you look at, at the, the policy response, and it seems to me that there are there's an element of political obsession, you know, with zero COVID policy, of course, but there's also maybe an element of the fact that China has to flatten the curve more than we had to do, right, because the vaccination rates aren't very good, especially among old people, and maybe the hospital capacity and the medical, you know, system isn't as good as, as they make us believe, right? So, so that's going going to continue, well, I think. Can you help us understand why Xi Jinping um, continues to stick to this COVID zero policy? Why not 
you know, mass vaccinations, they have the supply chains to make stuff, right? They have the authority to order people to take stuff. Why not deal with it that way rather than this way? I mean, they have done to a certain extent, right? So you have about 90% of the population is vaccinated twice. The lowest vaccination rates are among people over 80, which is very concerning. I think they're you know, old enough to remember <laughs> the good old days and they don't trust the government. Uh, and, and you have the vaccine is you know, far less effective than, than, than mRNA technology. It's an old style vaccine. Um, and I think you have the, I mean, you can't really trust the numbers out of China, right? I mean, I do not believe that the hospital capacity is as good as they claim it would be. And if they have a major out, outbreak with a, with a more, you know, infectious variant, um, you know, one to two million people would die and would make the leadership look really bad, right? And I think that's why they're not doing it. They're, they're easing up a little bit. I think they're walking this fine line between, you know, protests and, and, and people, you know, essentially complaining and, and, and all that, but it's the old flattening the curve that you're going to get it right. Eventually. So over the long haul, you're going to get it. Yeah, of course. Well, look, Merkel said that right at the very beginning of the pandemic before when we all thought it was crazy. She said, I think 60 to 70% of people are going to end up getting COVID. And we thought this is in March of 2020. That's nuts. Yeah. And she turned out. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Hans, how do you, we, we all recognize that the Chinese government's in a very difficult position here. How do you actually think this ultimately plays out? It's hard to say. I, I think we, we have to understand that uh, China is this ultimate surveillance state, right, and with enormous powers, right? And so drawing any parallels from the past, I think, are, is very dangerous because that's just, that's just not how it was, right? So you might have protests, but... The, the degree to which China is is monitoring its population, you know, through the phones and through cameras and all this stuff, makes it pretty. They're very effective at putting any kind of protest down. And I think, you know, you, you the, the models we may have used in the past, and you know, in terms of like Tiananmen Square and even Hong Kong in 2019, may not apply. I think they will be quite successful in in keeping the population under control. It's very interesting indeed. What what do you think? In terms of, you know, Apple, for example, is now um, accelerating its quest to produce more iPhones elsewhere. Um, A lot of companies have, as you know, at Mitchell Madison, um, looked for ways to untangle themselves from the Chinese supply chain web. Is that going to happen or are we going to all chill out and they're going to keep making all the stuff we buy? Well, I certainly hope not, right? I mean, I think you've seen some some elements of this. You saw, you guys reported that Mexico had the absolute largest uh, monthly export to the United States, and there were some pretty sophisticated, you know, products, automotive parts, and so forth. I think it's happening. The private sector, as usual, will drive this shift away from China. This is not going to be a top-down thing. Um, and I think there's alternatives, right? Uh, obviously, there's huge capital investments in the country that have to be replicated. I think, you know, Taiwan was probably the most dangerous situation that from the private sector perspective that could happen. But it's dangerous for both parties. So I think people will be hopefully be, be cool about it, right? Cool heads. Uh, but I, I think the private sector has to take a lead on this. And the name of the game is diversification, diversification, diversification. You cannot rely on the single supply. Even Apple, like the most sophisticated supply chain company, on this in the history of humanity, you know, got hit pretty hard, right? Yeah, yeah it's a, it's an extraordinary situation, uh, seemingly fluid, changing by the day there in China with 
as you mentioned, Hans, just broad, broad implications for the global economy. Hans Dow, CEO of Wait, Nixon Hans Dow, where did you study? Which university in Germany? You know, I think yeah, I studied in Mannheim, which sounds a little bit like Michigan. Maybe that's that's what happened. <laughs> oh, that's like a Weinheimer. That's like a, an uh, engineering school, right? Yeah, it's a cool place, you know. Oh, yeah, I love Mannheim, and Mannheim. we use their uh, used car indexes. Oh, we so, do. That's yeah. right. Good stuff. All right, Hans, thanks so much for joining us. Exactly. <laughs> going to roundtable it a little bit right now. Our topic is going to be this railroad potential strike that's out there. We've got a couple of weeks to kind of deal with that. Now it have big implications for this economy. So we need to get a couple smart people on here. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Transportation Analyst Lee Klaskow, who joins us uh, on the phone. And Jody Schneider here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's a political uh, news director for Bloomberg TV and Radio. So, Lee, let's start with you. I'd love to get a sense of what you're hearing from the big railroad companies that you talk to. What are they saying here? Hey, Paul, thanks for having me. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, I think they remain relatively optimistic uh, that, that an agreement uh, can uh, can come before the December 9th deadline. Uh, obviously, the closer you get to that deadline, the rails will have to start shutting down their networks to ensure that, um, you know, uh, freight's not going to get lost in the system. Uh, and, and also to make sure that their employees are, are home, um, you know, when, when the strike happens. Um, so, you know, you could see a disruption before the December 9th deadline uh, as as we get closer to that deadline. If, in fact, um, you know, the companies, the railroads feel that they can't get to an agreement. But but obviously, noise out of Washington uh, looks like, uh, you know, the federal government, uh, the administration and Congress is working pretty hard to make sure that doesn't happen just because of the, uh, you know, the impact to the economy, which the American Trucking uh, or sorry, the Association of American Railroads are putting out around $2 billion a day. Are we still looking at the same problems we were back in uh, August, September, where, you know, railroad employees can't get a day off to go to the doctor or where, you know, one woman or man is in charge of an entire freight train along a route? Yeah, you know, it's it's really not about pay. Uh, you know, the 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 pay aspect. Uh, they're getting a pretty nice bump. They're getting uh, 24 percent uh, raises over over uh, a, a four a four or five year period. Um, it's really about, to your point, the work rules. You know, how easy or difficult is it for uh, a rail employee to you know call in sick to to go to a doctor's appointment? You know, are they going to be penalized for that? You know, there's about 13 groups that are negotiating uh, as part of this National Railway, Railway Labor Conference. Uh, four of them have not ratified the agreement. Uh, the others, uh, uh, seven, have ratified the agreement. Um, and, and so it's really those, those four holdouts uh, that could really right. snag things up. Not but, only but, Lee, what's, what's the problem here on the side of the railroad operators? I mean, why not give your employees um, days off? to deal with healthcare issues. I mean, you wouldn't insist that a locomotive work every day. If it's broken down, you're not going to put it in service, right? Right. And, and I'm not definitely here to defend the railroads at any stretch of the imagination, but you know, the, this is something that's typically uh, negotiated at the local level. Uh, that's what the rails are saying. So they're not necessarily saying, you know, we're mean and we don't want our employees to take off. We're saying that this is typically dealt at the local level, and that's where it should be uh, negotiated, opposed to this national broad yep. contract uh, for all the railroads. Um, you know, and 
the, the problem also becomes, you know, a lot of railroads are operating a lot more efficiently because they've implemented precision scheduling railroading, which is pretty much six sigma for the rail industry. Uh, and, you know, they're trying to operate lean and mean. And, you know, when, if, 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 if you're scheduled to work and someone's calling out, that right. could put a, a wrench in, in the whole system. Uh, but the rails need to probably realize, well, maybe we need to resource our systems a, a, a little more. Uh, and, you know, if that's going to cost 10 basis right. in, in, in operating ratio, uh, so be it. But, yep. you know, that, that's an argument that uh, the railroads will have to have. Uh, not only, you know, uh, discussion with the unions, but also discussions with, with shareholders, shareholders as well. Right. Because, you know, because rail investors are uh, probably myopically focused on the operating ratio, uh, yep. which is an inverse of an EBIT margin. So hey. lower the better. Hey, Jody, I want to bring you in here. What can this administration do? What should they do? What do you think they can get done? Well, President Biden says now he was going to go to Congress, uh, and yesterday in his statement uh, expressing concern about uh, this potential strike, now that it's you know coming closer, uh, that he said lawmakers should immediately codify the agreement that uh, he helped, of course, broker in September between the unions and the railroads. Uh, it looks like in the House they're getting ready to do that. Um, outgoing uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she will move to do that, to codify that this week. Uh, the Senate's a little trickier because they have other things on the agenda, and the Senate always takes longer to do things, things like the intervening day uh, pop-up. Uh, so it's unclear whether that will happen there. By the way, Congress has acted. We went and looked. They've acted 18 times uh, to prevent strikes. Um, they, but the last time they did this was 1994. So um, it's been a while. <laughs> you could say that again. <laughs> yes. It's been 26 um, <laughs> years, 28 years. 28 years, yeah. Um, so, hey, while we have you here, Jody, when are we going to know the full composition of the Senate? Yeah, so next uh, Tuesday we have a big uh, runoff between Herschel Walker on the Republican side and sitting Senator Raphael Warnock on the Democratic side. Uh, early voting has been a record in that, so uh, a lot of people have already gotten out there. Uh, it's still uh, polls, and there aren't a ton of polls, but the polls are showing them pretty neck and neck. Uh, it won't determine, obviously, the majority in the Senate because we already knew that um, the Democrats have, have picked that up, but it will give them a little bit of breathing room, the Democrats if they do win that seat. And uh, so it looks neck and neck, uh, lots of, you know, issues there. And of course, uh, Herschel Walker was somebody who Donald Trump had supported. Brian Kemp, uh, the governor who just was reelected, is now supporting uh, Walker. He hadn't done a whole lot for him in the general campaign, but is now appearing on the stage with him. Interesting fact, and another fun fact here, 200,000 uh, voters voted for Kemp who did not vote for uh, Walker in the general election. Mm, okay. So the question is are they are those people likely to show up or some who voted for him likely to show up it's all going to be about turnout yep all right jody great stuff thanks so much for joining us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio and lee Claskow, he's a, a senior uh transportation analyst focusing on the rails and the trucks and all that logistics stuff so certainly the uh, perfect guy to get on the phone here uh, and talk to us about what could be a strike for the nation's uh, railroads beginning december 9th uh, so that's a big issue uh, we will keep on top of that from Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? 
I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I got the argument why the Amazons and the Microsofts would come to the debt market to raise debt, even though they don't need it because interest rates were zero. But interest rates aren't zero anymore, yet Amazon coming to the market with maybe a $7 billion deal. Matt it's Miller's a big deal. It's a big deal. Matt, it's like a huge deal in a, in a year where there's nothing going on for a lot of these uh, investment banks. So we got to bring in, uh, Matt says we got to get uh, uh, somebody in here, and we do. We have our friend here to talk to us about what is going on here from Bloomberg Intelligence. What is going on here? Why is Amazon, uh, Rob, why are they coming to market now? Well, listen, others might take credit for this phrase, but I think I created it. You borrow when you can, not when you need to. Ah, Rates, that sounds like Jack Reacher. Yeah. I think Jack Reacher said that. <laughs> so, listen, uh, the 10 years rallied 50 basis points uh, in the last two months. Uh, spreads are just, you know, really haven't moved that much. The cost of capital for Amazon isn't that much. And by the way, they've spent a lot of money over the last couple of years. Their cash numbers are down 30-odd billion dollars. Their free cash flow negative for the year. Um, so they're just fortifying their balance sheet. I think it could be two things. Um, one is there could be more M&A coming, or two is they could be joining their uh, large cap brethren um, and start uh, start participating in this capital return game uh, and start buying a, a back a lot more stock. You know, they've pretty much stayed out of the capital return market. So, all right, Rob Schiffman, Bloomberg Intelligence. My question is, is this just like, I don't know, on the M&A front, it feels like there's a lot of places they could go. But, and they do do some smaller deals, but is there any call out there that they could do a big, big, big deal? You know, it's pretty hard to make one there, transformational yeah. uh, trades these days. One is Amazon is so big, there's nothing that they could actually buy that would that would meaningfully change their their top or bottom line. Plus, they got regulatory issues. Don't yeah, they? and then yeah. secondly, listen, you've got guys like Microsoft going after Activision, um, and they might not be able to get get away with it, uh, and they're willing to spend you know close to seventy billion dollars of cash. So, listen, there's a lot of things Amazon can buy. Um, they can get much deeper into the the movie, uh, TV production, theatrical businesses. You know, there could be more in terms of of um, you know health and healthcare, you know there's always a Peloton sitting out there. Listen, mm -hmm. in theory, maybe they want to buy a Netflix, but it's it's probably <laughs> unlikely. I think you know M and A for a name like this is really around the edges. What matters to Amazon is growth in AWS and people buying a lot of stuff online, and that's ultimately what's going to drive the business. Yep. And they have the might to command a decent rate in markets, right? I mean, I was looking at the story. It said they're going for 115 basis points over treasuries. That's pretty good. Is that good for Amazon? Well, listen, they, they actually trade meaningfully tighter than their A and above tech comparables, but they do trade wider uh, than their real, their, their biggest comps, Apple, Microsoft, uh, Alphabet. So they, they surely still, not wider than Netflix well, or Disney. <laughs> no, or, or Meta. Um, but are, are they are they attractive to people uh, because one, they offer incremental yield versus the super high quality names. And because credit quality is still actually on the rise. I mean, even though this is a double A name, 
they could be high double A. I don't think anyone really is concerned about Amazon's credit quality going forward. And in fact, sort of all the noise that you've seen in the equity market really hasn't played into Amazon. It, you know, when I talk to, to clients, you know, most of them say to me, I'm surprised they haven't widened out a lot more. And, and the reason why they haven't is that, you know, most people know what Amazon is. It's very easy to pick through this balance sheet. And think, you know, over the long term, the cash flow trajectory for this name is going to be mm. enormous. They have also the ability to control uh, what their free cash flow looks like. We pretty much know what demand is going to be, plus or minus certain amounts, regardless of a recession. So what's going to drive free cash flow is going to be spending. And what you've heard them say recently is, hey, you know what? We're taking the pedal off of our spending. We're going to fire a bunch of people, 10,000. It's not an, it's not that much relative to a million and a they half have, employees yeah, I was that say they have. have a lot more but they, if, they, if they take the pedal off and they spend 10 or $15 billion less next year, that'll go right to the, to the bottom line mm -hmm. of free cash flow. Unlike Meta, who constantly said, we're just going to spend more. We're, we're going to blow more. another 10 yeah. or $15 billion on the Metaverse because Zuckerberg can do that. Amazon's not acting that way. So and if I'm a But they have in the past. But Aunt, but Bezos has in the past, right? They can but turn the no tap on there. and off. Yeah, well, listen, they haven't had to turn it off in the past. You know, they've, yeah. on, they've only spent money. And, and, and as, as we went both... As we went into COVID, for instance, you know, they spent a lot more. The demand for Amazon products right. went way up. You know, AWS was still was still printing cash, but the demand for for delivery of products went way way up. So they built out a ton more in terms of distribution facilities, um, uh, the the actual distribution and get, buying more trucks. Um, and they hired a ton more people. So they're just slowing down as the economy slows down a little bit. So they really haven't had to take their foot off the pedal. They're going to do it now for a little bit. They'll protect their balance sheet. And then as soon as things pick up again, I think that they could, uh, they'll could they be able to meet demand whenever they need All right, to. I'm a salesperson at Barclays or Bank of America, or one of the other under underwriters. Who am I calling today to buy this issue? Well, listen. He really wants to know for his own PA. <laughs> yeah. You know, listen, mom and pops are not the ones who are buying $70 billion worth so I'm buying, of Amazon I'm calling debt. a pension fund. Yes. Mutual funds and... And insurance and, companies. And insurance. Those, who, those, those who have, you know, long, want long-lived assets. They've got long-lived obligations. You know, this bond deal, in, in, in fact, is actually reasonably short duration. It's two to 10 years. Okay. And it sort of goes to show that, listen, uh, Amazon's much more comfortable about short-dated rates than they are necessarily about long-dated rates. Uh, but this is an institutional Yes. Bond. Yep. You know, if, if for those who are looking for yield, you're not necessarily buying Amazon. So it's the, all the largest buyers that buy right. all this, all the rest of, of, of these high quality bonds. All right. Good stuff. Rob Schiffman, uh, he covers all things technology from the credit perspective. And he's in the office. And he's in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in the office. So that means you get a gold star. I know that's big for you. Uh, it's big for us here to get folks in the studio. I want to bring in Vivek Ramaswamy. You know him as the co-founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management. He's also the author of the book Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. But he also has recently penned an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with Mark Lurie about the fall, the spectacular collapse of FTX. And so we wanted to get his thoughts on this story um, that seems to just keep on giving. Vivek, you know that uh, BlockFi has just filed for bankruptcy. We're all watching to see what happens with Genesis and Gemini. Anyone who knows about this space uh, realizes that other shoes, we're waiting for other shoes to drop, I guess. Um, 
what do you think about the root of the problem? Why did we all trust Sam Bankman-Fried and what went wrong? Well, I think that uh, there are a lot of parallels to the 2008 financial crisis, which I uh, you know, had the privilege of seeing from a front row seat when I graduated from, from college in 2007. Uh, what college? Right the, the 08 crisis. I, I graduated from college. I went from Harvard for college, and then I worked at a hedge fund in that fall that actually got an honorable mention. You can't in just Michael say I graduated from college if you went to Harvard. You should say I, I graduated I, from Harvard or I went I, to school in Cambridge. You know, I, I think I got over that around my sophomore year. That's That was my experience of that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's it, it turns out that uh, there's a separate discussion for another day. I, I'm a little bit disappointed that Harvard isn't really the place it was when I went there. But that's a, that's a topic for another well, day. Well, FTX certainly isn't the place it was two months ago. What yeah, happened? Exactly. So, so look, I think that it's worth separating what's specific to this being a crypto exchange versus what's actually not at all specific to this being a crypto exchange, but just a centralized exchange at all. And this is the point I made in the piece in the Wall Street Journal that I co-authored, which is that this was a centralized exchange. And and a fundamental feature of a centralized exchange is that you have to trust someone else, another human being with your money to take custody over your funds. A centralized exchange cannot work unless someone else, a human being, take control of your funds. That lends itself to fraud. That fraud is illegal. Whether or not you're operating a cryptocurrency exchange or an exchange that trades different securities, fraud is illegal. Taking someone else's money, customers' funds, and using it for a different purpose without their permission is fraud. I will note that's exactly what happened about a decade ago in the MF Global scandal. People lost their money because someone broke the law and committed fraud. Yes, with former uh, Goldman Sachs, New Jersey Governor John Corzine. Exactly. And so it's worth seeing with clear eyes that this... Uh, wasn't that feature of this wasn't necessarily specific to cryptocurrencies. It was specific to a fraudulent bad actor who used customer funds to advance his own ends. Now you ask, why wasn't this detected earlier? And I think a big underappreciated part of the story is that he presented himself to the public effectively, quite effectively, I may say, as one of the good guys, as the guy who was calling for so-called responsible regulation of cryptocurrencies, as the guy who was winning good ESG scores and saying things that the ESG-friendly crowd wanted him to say, making tens of millions of dollars, I think $30 million plus in this cycle alone, to Democratic candidates, doing the kinds of things that the good guys are supposed to do just like, by the way, Ralph Wintercorn, or CEO Wintercorn, I think his name was Ralph Wintercorn, Wintercorn was his last name, the CEO Volkswagen, who was caught in the emissions cheating scandal. Oh, yeah, Martin. Only after, exactly, Martin Wintercorn, excuse me. It, it, shortly after, they had actually won multiple ESG awards. Shortly after, he had spent years waxing eloquent about the climate transition. Guess who turns out to be the bat, the worst of the actors? Of all, it's actually the company that pretended to be one of the good guys. And so I think we learned this lesson time and again, that human beings and markets and customers and citizens are pretty good at holding bad actors accountable as long as you don't throw a tripwire in the system, as long as you don't tamper with the smoke detector. Okay, but one of the ways some of these guys be from, from Wintercorn to SBF now managed to tamper with the smoke detector is that they presented this smoke screen of virtue that I think otherwise turned off the public's radar to picking up on the signals that otherwise would right. have caused them to pick up on, on the fraud much sooner. Vivek, does crypto broadly defined need to be regulated? So I think that a knee-jerk regulatory response on the back of this and a catch-all regulatory approach that did not draw distinctions between centralized and decentralized exchanges would be a bad idea. 
That being said, I think the legal regime as it exists in ways that prevent fraud for non-cryptocurrency-based securities, non-cryptocurrency-based assets, absolutely should and does already apply to cryptocurrency as well. It just is a question of the ability to enforce those standards evenly. You can't steal someone else's funds. That's illegal. If you're a fiduciary or if you're a custodian of someone else's funds, you cannot misuse those for your own purposes. So in a certain sense, that's not new regulation. That's just the application of basic legal principles, of trust principles, of fiduciary principles, of non-theft principles, of non-misappropriation principles that exist in the law for assets, have existed in the common law for hundreds of years that need to be applied in the same way to cryptocurrencies as they are to any other assets. And so my view is that Crypto doesn't get a special pass from those rules just yep. because people call it crypto, but nor should we overreact to create Got a crypto-specific regime that's, a, that's actually, ironically, what SBF was exactly, exactly. calling for. Exactly. He might make his own wish come true. All right, Vivek, thank you so much once again for joining us. Always learn something there. Vivek Ramaswani, co-founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management. You know, Matt, it is Giving Tuesday, although I know for you every day is, is Giving Tuesday. You're a giver. But... We wanted to talk about education, um, nonprofits, things like that, because the pandemic has really done a job on the educational uh, environment out there, particularly for, for younger children. So we want to kind of break that down and get a little sense of what's going on out there. What are some of the good stories? What are some of the challenges? For that, we get an excellent roundtable here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Angela Williams, CEO of Common Denominator, uh, joins us, as well as Marion Scordell with Bougerville Consulting. Close enough. Good. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Good. I did that again. <laughs> two for two. Um, all right. So, Angela, let's start with you. Just talk to us about Common Denominator. What are you guys doing at Common Denominator? Well, I think at Common Denominator, we give the gift that keeps on giving. Um, and that's the gift of, of, of math numeracy. Uh, Common Denominator is a, a nonprofit organization that provides free, holistic math tutoring to middle school students who are really struggling with basic numeracy, math numeracy, um, and, and really struggling um, in their math uh, class. You know, our mission is to help underserved middle school students improve their math skills, build confidence, and enjoy doing math. So how did it evolve, devolve during the past th two and a half, three years? Okay, well, you know, prior to the pandemic, we knew that uh, our middle school students we're having a significant problem in, in math, and we knew what the causes. And so we were diligent about providing uh, a place where we were gonna provide the resources and tools for them. Of course, uh, unfortunately, the, the COVID-19 pandemic landed more underserved students on the vulnerable side of an even larger achievement gap. So, you know, it has been incredible for our organization because as we pivoted from in-person to online, we've been able to open up uh, our program to a wider uh, swath of students uh, across New York City. Um, and, and, and it has been very effective for our students as well as for our organization. So, Marianne, how do you come into this um, discussion? How uh, did you and Angela meet? How have you gotten involved? Well, we, I, we met through my neighbors, really, but um, <laughs> who's probably listening to us, actually. But I hope so. But um, I Shout out? <laughs> who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Andrew. Hi, uh, Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> so, no, I came, I came to Common Denominator because I have a background in financial services. I worked in an investment bank. I'm running my own business. And I know what education did for me, so um, I don't come from a privileged background at all. 
And yet I was able to go to Oxford, I was able to, now I teach sometimes at Yale and at other universities, and I know what education can do for you, I know how it can get you out of, you know, it can broaden your horizons, it can open up careers, it can open up a future, and then in turn, you have to help others. So that's, that's where I fit in. And can I also point out, um, I don't want it to be overlooked, that it can be very helpful for the bank or the organization to have a more diverse uh, group of minds working on problems. Absolutely. When I was in banks, and even now when I, we know if I have to recruit, I'm like, all the candidates come from exactly the same background, they're all exactly all the same. And we are, you know, we are pushed to bring more diversity into organizations, but the thing is, if all the candidates come from the same place, there's a very narrow pool of candidates to choose from. So I think the problem has to be addressed a lot earlier. By the time, you know, they pass middle school, I, I'm not saying it's too late because it's never too late, but it would help if at, the, at an earlier stage we would help students instead of helping them just at university stage. So Angela, when, when you get these students at a young age and you're focusing on math, I guess it's all part of this, the STEM focus that we hear so much about in uh, education. What are some of the key challenges for math? Is math just harder for some students than other uh, skills or other subjects? or? Is it more on the on the instruction side? What's kind of some of the challenges? I think the key challenge is that, you know, we are all math people. And if we start to understand that and gravitate towards that, we won't have the challenges that we do. Imagine being seen as part of a group taught to believe that they could not excel in math. Uh, imagine the repercussions of believing that false notion your entire life. Um, and, and really imagine having an additional impediment you know, to your own upward mobility. You're, you know, we're potentially, for middle school students, who uh, prior to the pandemic, only about 36% uh, of them were even fluent in math by eighth grade, now add on the troubles of the uh, pandemic, and we're talking about, you know, students of color and those in low-income brackets who are suffering even more from the, from the inequities and the education gap. So potentially, according to, to uh, what Marianne said, they are not identifying with math, and therefore they're cutting off an entire industry that could really uh, allow them to become upwardly mobile. Jobs like, you know, medical scientists, financial an analysts, statistics, statistician, actuary, economist, not even considering them, not considering banking. Um, and, and that is critical. That's critical. And it's something that we have to really uh, work towards so yeah. that our students can understand the importance. And, and sometimes the barriers are really psychological. So sometimes they wouldn't even think of an industry that is so remote that nobody in their families work in. So we are also, as part of Common Denominator, we are organizing bank visits. So we are bringing small groups of uh, middle school children, we're bringing them to see what a trading floor is, you know, what, so because in their minds, this is just not for them. So that's why they wouldn't consider these careers. That's, they, f they feel from the start excluded. Um, so that, that's one, one of the things we're doing. It's not just the education, it's also the psychological barriers. And I mean, I imagine that mentoring would be important as well, right? A lot of these kids, yep. you know, their parents are unlikely to be involved in the financial industry. Maybe they don't even know anybody in the neighborhood who's involved in the financial industry. So I'm sure it would help to connect them with Angela, with someone like Marianne. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're doing. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so what's, what's it like in a, a New York City public school today from a math perspective? I mean, what are, I, I know in other schools, you know, maybe some, you know, math is really a focus. Is it a focus? Does it get the proper, 
you know, weight, do you think? You know, that's a great question. Um, I, I actually have the results from the New York State Department of Education recently released assessment. And some of their key findings uh, state that less than half of all students in grades three through eight are proficient in math. Proficiency rates for students from low-income backgrounds continue to lag the rates of their more affluent peers. Um, across all the racial groups, there were losses in math proficiency. However, the proficiency gaps uh, between racial groups were alarmingly wide. Um, and, and you know, there, there's year-to-year there's -year decline in math proficiency for all students, including right. eighth grade. Yeah, it's, uh, the data uh, is not too supportive at the moment. I'm sure the pandemic just made the challenges more pronounced. But fortunately, there's good folks out there like uh, you two kind of doing your best to kind of help out. Angela Williams, CEO of Common Denominator, uh, and Marianne Scordell uh, with Bougieville Consulting, both joining us here, both kind of joining powers, if you will, joining resources and trying to make a, a, a big impact on this issue. And you we know, got about 10 seconds left. Yeah, absolutely. This Giving Tuesday, give the gift that keeps on there giving. There you go. Absolutely. Good the, stuff. Thank you very much. The gift of math numeracy. Absolutely. Yeah, very good. Absolutely correct. And, yep. and financial literacy, right? right? Also very key at a young age. Yep. Very good stuff. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.